Hello and welcome to the Arena Craft Podcast, a show devoted exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I am one of your hosts. Joining us today is our other host, Covert Go Blue. How are you doing today, my friend? I am doing so good today. It was an eventful week in the arena for me, so I'm sure that you also have plenty to share, so... Yeah, we're going to have a big show. I I feel like I can talk all week about this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of our main challenges in this podcast is going to be not making every show three hours long. But I think that that's hopefully good news for you, the listener, trying to pack in as much juicy information as we possibly can today. I will say that it has been a very eventful week for me and Arena as well. It's also been a rather tilting week. And some of it was my fault and some of it wasn't. I just hit one of those patches where I seem to just keep flooding out or screwing. I seem to keep facing the busted decks and draft when my deck was already pretty good. Stuff just, you know, those those kind of usual magic tilting things. Yes, they happen to me too. They happen to everybody. What are you talking about? (laughs) I've never, this has never happened to me. What are you, like, you mean you don't just draw what you want? You know, we can't all be covert, go blue, and just draw gas off the top of our 250-card deck every time. (laughs) (laughs) You got to get get bigger in the scene, and then Wizards gives you the account that just lets you always draw well to sell the game, right? Maybe sometimes when you take a look at your deck, you realize that you had a little bit more agency in your bad luck than you thought you did, which is one of the things I'm going to get to in one of the decks I've been playing this week. But first, a few things quickly. I wanted to let you know that I just recorded a limited focused episode with the Magic Arena Drafting Club. And by the time this episode is released, that one should be up. So go check them out. They're a fun couple of guys. And we had a nice relaxed conversation about the Ikaria draft format. And there was also a little bit of just personal information in there about me and my life, which may or may not be at all interesting to you. At any rate, you can go and check them out. Good friends of mine. Can we give, it, can be... we give it a little tease? Because I, I've been hearing people say that they force cycling and it's busted. Is that true? That Like, I don't know anything, but is it just true that you force cycling and you win? That's definitely one of the ways that you can approach the Ikaria draft format. I... Okay, I think that it's a little overblown. I think that it's a little bit of like boogeyman syndrome going on there. It's definitely, I mean, there's no question that if you get the deck, like if you get the Zenith flares and you get the payoffs and etc., and you get enough one mana cyclers, it is pretty busted. But I won't spoil it, but I actually shared some of my opinions on how that deck can go wrong. And I also shared some of my opinions on some strategies that I think can actually be very successful in beating that deck. It is definitely, in my opinion, a bit of a house of cards, unless your opponent just has like, if your opponent has like multiple Zenith flares and all that kind of stuff, then you can pretty much pack it in. But for the average cycling deck, I think they are by no means unbeatable, especially playing one of my favorite decks in the format, which I think is almost a hard counter to the deck. So 
go and listen to that episode and get more information about that. That was an amazing tease. Like you almost, uh, you almost made me want to play limited. Oh, oh, I did play limited this week. Do you want to hear about it? Just really quick. Yeah, you're good. I'm going to make some people really angry. I'm going to make people turn this off. You ready? I I am all ears, my friend. Lay it on me. I I turned in those free draft tokens that I got. Ah, mm mm-hmm. And I drafted every rare. Okay, all right. So you just went shopping. Oh, yeah. I just did. It it was like opening packs, but it took 20 minutes. And sometimes I got like five or six rares instead of three. So, and then did you have the pleasure of actually trying to jam them in a deck and just play some monstrosity or what? Uh, I hit resign and then did it again. Okay. (laughs) Okay. It was a transaction for you. You know, dang it, Kovac Go Blue, you almost had me going there. (laughs) Sorry. Tiger can't change its stripes today. Well, this is going to be one of my ongoing missions of this show is to try to slowly coerce you over to the dark side as it were. How is the limited the dark side with what we're doing in freaking standard right now? Sorry, uh, <laughs> looking ahead. That's a good that's a good question. I think the dark side comes in the in the compulsive gambling just one more draft, crack those packs kind of a thing. I think any true limited player will describe themselves as a junkie. I I agree. Y- y'all have problems. It it is a problem. You know, limited isn't a hobby, it's a problem. But <laughs> I I prefer to go in with open you know, I, I walk into the AA meeting and I say, My name's Arjuna, I have a problem. I play limited. Yep, that sounds right. Uh, it, it's a problem which at the moment I'm happy to have, shall we say. Cancel the AA. We gotta we gotta end the meeting because we, one of our challenges is not to talk too long. We already addressed this. We already addressed okay. this. <laughs> so, so moving along, we're going to speak mostly about standard today. But first of all, CGB had some exciting card spoilers that were given to him by Wizards this week. And so we're going to dip a little bit into his Staric again and just discuss some of the stuff that you can be looking forward to when that queue goes live on the 21st of this month. So what did they hand you to preview for us, CGB? Well, uh, hashtag sponsored. I'm supposed to say that pretty much every time I reference this whole thing. Uh, But um, anyway, for the historic anthology, they are bringing back the Hondins, a beloved cycle of legendary enchanted shrines from the Kamigawa cycle. Have you had the pleasure of having the uh, of playing the Hondins? Were you was this a was magic a part of your life during Honden times? No, it sure wasn't. I look back on Kamigawa with that kind of wistful curiosity because. I know it was kind of a controversial set. Some people said it was underpowered, but it seemed to have some pretty sweet cards in it. So I'm actually pretty excited to play with some of these cards. I, I It was a big part of my life at the time. I played a lot of Kamigawa, and it was a, a, it was a, it was a rather toxic, quite honestly, standard format dominated mm, okay. by one card. But back then, we even had block, so you could only play Kamigawa cards in some cases. Uh, it's like a standard, but even smaller. And one card, Umazawa's Jite, was just the only card that mattered in block right, specifically. Right, yeah. 
But there was a lot of cool stuff going on in Kamigawa, and one of the things that was particularly that did see some standard play, but was very, very impactful in the limited format of the time, was the Honden Cycle, which each of these is an enchantment, a legendary enchantment shrine. Each of these are uncommon, so it's not hard to get a few of them. And they have effects that they grow for each shrine that you control, each enchantment type shrine that you control. So the white Honden is Honden of Cleansing Fire. At the beginning of your upkeep, you gain two life for each shrine you control. So this one's legendary. You can't have two white Hondens so that you're gaining uh, four life from each one if you have two of those. But if you branch into other colors, it kind of encourages you to play other colors because then you look at the red Honden and it's Honden of Infinite Rage. And it's two in a red legendary enchantment shrine. And at the beginning of your upkeep, Honden of Infinite Rage deals damage to any target equal to the number of shrines you control. Okay, so I, I see where we're going with this. Yeah, you yeah, curve yeah. it, right? You play your Honden of Infinite Rage. The next upkeep, you deal one damage to something. Then you play your White Honden, and the next upkeep, you gain four life and deal two damage to something. Which, you know, this can start to stack pretty nicely, especially this Honden of Knight's Reach in particular stands out to me. So this is the beginning of your upkeep target opponent discards a card for each shrine you control, which I imagine gets pretty nasty. I mean, even just, you know, on your upkeep target opponent discards a card, that alone is an interesting enchantment for me. But if it starts to scale more, then that probably just gets pretty busted pretty quickly. Yeah, that one is... A very strong one back in the day when there were reactionary decks. Obviously, if I have a counterspell in my hand and I pass and then you force me to discard it, did I really have a counterspell in my hand? It's just it's very sad times. If a spell gets counted in the woods and no one sees it, did it happen? These are the, these are the deep questions that happen in magic. I think that these push you in an interesting deck building direction because clearly you don't want to be drawing multiples of these because they're legendary and you probably have to have something else going on, but I could see some kind of interesting multicolor control deck running some of these and, you know, enchantment synergies or permanents on the battlefield synergies or whatever. So yeah, that is, that's very intriguing to me. Yeah, um, and so they let me preview the whole Honden cycle and it, it says like three things to me about this historic anthology, if you'll indulge me into my insights for a second. So uh, the first thing is, I looked at these, and obviously, like a Teferi, Time Raveler, for example, laughs at all of these. They don't seem competitive, constructed play, especially in an eternal format, like historic, on their face. So it says a few things to me. The first thing is that they are introducing cards through historic anthologies, and I think it's for some kind of limited push on historic cube, because Mm, these are far more interesting i think for limited players would you agree yes yes i think that that is that's perceptive and it makes a lot of sense the second thing is this may be hinting at a return to kamigawa now this has been controversial for quite a while Uh, there are people who very much want to go back to kamigawa and there are people who saw that time as a as a dark period in creative mtg times and maybe saw too many umizawa's jite being cast against each other and want nothing to do with that but why would they reprint 
this set of cards that trigger for each shrine you control that aren't very competitive on their own if they didn't plan to introduce more shrines. And if they plan to introduce more shrines, why would they do it anywhere other than Kamigawa? It's something that's been pretty exclusive to that plane. What do you think? I could definitely see it. Now, I'm trying to remember, when did the ninjas show up? Were they, they must have been part of the Kamigawa thing, right? Yeah, and so and we saw a return of ninjas recently in the last um, Modern Horizons set. And so, yeah, it does kind of make me wonder if they've been slowly evoking that plane more and more. I mean, personally, I would totally love to see it. I would love to see a return to equipment. I've never gotten to play Callblade or any of these like truly epically legendarily busted equipments that people talk about. I suppose Embercleave being the modern example is a card that I have gotten to play with and against. But it would seem to me like if they were to do a return to Kamigawa, they might do an equipment focus. And if that were the case, I would be all about it personally. Do you enjoy those Embercleave games? Is that is that your idea of fun? Do you want a whole set that's like getting Embercleaved in different ways? I mean, I... I'm cool on the particular cleave. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm cool on that. But I do like the idea of maybe something like an Umazawa's Jite that's a little bit closer to the Ember Cleave and power level. I just I like the incentives that it brings into standard. I think mono the mono red deck's been a little bit obnoxious, but overall, in order to have equipment be good, creatures need to be in your deck. And I just like the idea, especially like with all of this nonsense that's happening in Standard right now, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I just really like the idea of creatures continuing to be good in Standard and, and continuing to have incentives to play them with powerful cards such as this. So if I have to get cleaved in the face in order to play in a meta which feels a little bit more balanced and not just dominated by these kind of abstract Yorian control decks, then I'm all for it. You make good points, but I really hate getting cleaved in the face. It's hard for me to agree. (laughs) It's hard. I mean, that's what Teferi's for, my friend. Yeah, yeah. The good guy. We we unleash one monster against another. Exactly. So before we move on from this historic focus, what are some of the other cards in this list that have caught your eye? That's a good question. Let's see. I, we talked about Ulamog and we talked about Phyrexian Obliterator last time. So I'm going to hit a few others. I'm also just going to throw in my third point really quick about what these Hondans being included in the set really uh, yes. says to yes, me. Yes, forgive me. And that's okay. It's And it is that the historic format, Wizards, at least at some level, sees it as a product for casual players. Because mm. I looked at this and I was like... You know, I liked the Hondans, but obviously I don't think I'm going to play them in competitive historic anytime soon. You'll just get obliterated. And then I put out my reveal tweet, and there were actually a ton of people replying with like, Oh, yeah, the Hondans are back! You know, all caps, exclamation points, showers of emojis. And it made me realize, like, these cards, like these kind of five-color cycles have fans... And it doesn't matter whether it's competitive or not to a certain percent of the population. 
And this is a nostalgia play. You know, it's not really about what's going to break the format. This product is, in many ways, a nostalgia product that Wizards is selling through Historic Anthology 3 with some competitive cards, but also with a number of nostalgia plays. Absolutely. I mean, just looking down this list here, I'm looking at a particularly spicy one, Acroma's Memorial. Let's talk about this card. This is a seven-cost artifact legendary artifact and it says creatures you control have get ready for this flying first strike vigilance trample haste and protection from black and from red this jumps out to me as a card which people would have played in in some previous format as either like maybe a yeah like a limited top end card or just building some kind of janky deck around it and this very much to me speaks of like a nostalgia kind of a thing. Um, I think something that deserves some attention is the flashback mechanic. When you look at any of these flashback cards, do you think that these are going to be staples of the format? Only on burial rights. Yeah, on burial rights is a strong one, especially with your Ulamog, right? We're probably going to see a lot of Ulamog on burial rights. You certainly can. You wouldn't get the Exile 2 permanent trigger, but you'd have a mere 10-10 indestructible that exiles 20 cards from the opponent's library when it attacks. So that's not bad. It's about as good of a payoff as you can get for having no cast slash ETB trigger. The thing that makes Unburial Rights good is that you can play in such a way that filling your graveyard isn't just the... It isn't just a requirement to have a good target for your reanimation spell. It finds your reanimation spell as well. Typically, a reanimator deck has to... They have to do two things. They have to have their reanimator spell in hand, and they have to fill their graveyard, and they have to be torn in these two directions. But with this card, you just want as many cards in the graveyard as possible, because if one of them is on burial rights, then you're off to the races on turn four. You can flash it back, cast it from the graveyard, targeting something in your graveyard. And uh, that is that makes the reanimation strategy significantly better. Yeah, and this is a card that's seen play in many formats. So definitely a strong player, definitely just a card to keep an eye on in general. Now, here's a card that stood out to me that I thought was kind of interesting to talk about, Marari's Wake. So this is an enchantment, three green-white, Creatures you control get plus one, plus one, which is hardly the main draw of this card. But the second line reads, whenever you tap a land for mana, add one mana to your mana pool of any type that land produced. So one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is that this card has been a popular inclusion in many decks of yore from the past. This was like one of historically the mana doubling uh, spells, which people leaned on in a lot of different go big strategies. My main question for you, CGB, is do you think that Marari's Wake is going to see any play in lieu of other engines that we have at the moment, such as Fires of Invention, such as Wilderness Reclamation, such as Titan's Nest, which um, just wanted to give an errata for last week. A couple of people reached out to me and informed me that you cannot cast Ulamog off of Titan's Nest, which if I had read the card a little bit more closely, I could have deduced. So I apologize for the misinformation there, and thank you, dear listeners, for keeping me on track. However, Marari's Wake is another such kind of mana doubler. So what do you think about this card's potential in the upcoming format? This is another 
kind of amazing nostalgia play of its own because I remember playing this in standard and the control decks that it enabled in their incredible power. But when I look at this, I think it's direct competition isn't the cards that you named, although those are definitely good options. It's Nissa. Nissa just, well, uh, makes a 3-3 and doubles your mana sort of on her own. What deck that is going to play green and white is going to want to play this that wouldn't play Nissa? It has to be a deck that doesn't want to play forests. And with the Shocklands and the Triomes, there are more forests available that make the mana you want than ever. Maybe the Anthem effect has to be relevant, so it has to be super wide, something like a green-white tokens, but even then, I don't know. I I don't see an easy home for the card, and it is really tempting for me to call this one a, a nostalgia play as well. It is an enchantment. Like the Hondans, they're pushing all kinds of enchantments in these releases. So there's probably more to it than meets the eye, but I, at first I look at it and I think it's not as good of an engine as so many other cards are currently legal and standard, which is so crazy to say. I know. And I think part of it, to be honest, is just the casting cost. When we can get these kind of effects for four mana, then getting it for five mana is exactly. It just edges it into the Nissa territory. And at that point, why wouldn't you just want to play Nissa? I think, you know, maybe you could see like a you could build various decks, like a March of the Multitudes deck, for example, which might want to run a couple copies of Marari's Wake to to help enable that plan. But outside of specific use cases like that, I think that the combination of Anthem and Mana Doubling, it's just a curious combination. And so unless you're seeing like a meta which is particularly hostile to Planeswalkers, or unless you have you know, some other particular reason to want the Anthem, I agree, you're probably not likely to reach for this one first. But I think that this is an interesting example of comparing magic of yore to magic of today, which is an opportunity that we get when we're playing these cards on Arena. So uh, anyway, yeah, I, I think we, we don't have time to talk about all of these, but I just like... Uh, I, I like what this is doing to to the mind of the Magic player on Arena. I think it's just a really cool opportunity for Arena players to dip a little bit into the history of Magic. And also, it just gives us these, these moments of reflection, of seeing what has come in the past and what are we playing now and how does it line up. And who knows, maybe some of these golden oldies from the past will reveal their ongoing power in the current historic format. So I'm certainly excited to play it. Uh, CGB and I put our heads together and we've decided that we're going to be making a little bit more historic content this month for you. Keep an eye out for that. All right, CGB, let us move into some standard discussion. Now, we're going to be mostly this week focusing on the menace of standard, which is Luca Coppercoat Outcast who has basically, along with his good friend Yorian, has been kind of bullying the standard format into submission. However, first, I just wanted to go down a little deck-building rabbit hole, uh, partially just because this is something I've been thinking about a lot this past week, and also partially just to share with our listeners one example of what it's like to conceive of a deck, to tune it, to tweak it, and then to see how it lines up in the metagame, which I think is a really good skill 
to build. It's a really good muscle to flex in the world of magic. CGB, you are one of the foremost <laughs> flexors of this particular muscle that I can think of. I'm sure that the process of building many, many, many decks, you know, one plus a day, has helped your deck building skill overall in magic, wouldn't you say? Yes, for the most part. I think it's 80% yes. And I think it's 20% that I get into habits and I have trouble breaking them. And maybe when we talk about the Luca deck, we can get into how that impacts me as well. But for the most part, um, you can get into a train of like, this type of card is good, this type of card is bad, and you just kind of stay in that lane. It helps you make a lot of decks and it helps you most of the time, but it also creates some blind spots. Indeed, indeed. And you hear a lot of prominent brewers talking about this too, like Sam Black and etc. Um, you know, Ali Antrazi, people who clearly have like a, a penchant for certain ways of building decks who periodically have to give themselves a little self-assessment and say like, okay, come on, man, this this particular idea is just not worth going after. I just picture yeah. the people that you just mentioned and myself, you know, since we flex our deck building muscles in public on a daily, we're just on Twitter, like posing, flexing. <laughs> Ollie, especially, you know, very buff. Maybe me and Sam he would have, a, we would have trouble. A very swole dude. Anyways. <laughs> Sam and I would look pretty funny next to him, but I just picture all of us out there flexing our amazing deck building muscle. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. So one of my particular. Uh, deck building leaks, I guess I should say, overall is mono green. I don't know where I picked up my love of mono green mid-range decks in standard, but I, I have succumbed. And this is an archetype which basically every new set that comes out in standard, I'll spend, you know, a week plus if I'm having fun, just brewing around mono green and seeing if it's viable. And I actually had a fair amount of success with Mono Green and Eldraine Standard. I built a deck around Questing Beast, and I was running Ginger Brute. I was running Rose, uh, Rose Crown Halberd or whatever, Rose Thorn Halberd, and some Nyssa just to get more dorks on the board. And that deck was actually quite good. It had a good Oko matchup, which is one of the most important things and I was able to get up into high diamond with it and I think if I had played it more I probably could have gotten into mythic with it as well. So that was really great. Now since then the uh, Theros Beyond Death was very unfriendly I would say overall to mono green. Now with a notable exception there is another mono green mage out there who just loves 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 the whole concept. His name is Rint and he has been consistently high mythic, playing various versions of mono green. And he is a huge fan of the pelt collector kind of archetype. He likes to play a lot of these small ball creatures. And I'm trying to remember, what's the name of the 1-1 one, one, which becomes a 2-2 two, two at the beginning of combat if you control a non-human creature? I can't remember. Um, wire, wild, what, wire wood yeah. tracker. Wildwood yeah. tracker. That's it. Exactly. There you go. There you go. I also so want to say that, do you know this person personally? Like, is a member of your Discord or anything? Do you know anything else about this person? I, I don't. I've, I've actually been wanting to reach out to Rint. They're, they're kind of a, an enigmatic figure in the Magic community. Then I hope they don't hear this and take this as an insult, but I'm just going to picture, like, 
a 14 year old kid just playing Timmy Green and smashing Mythic just consistently. It's just in my head. That's what I see. Yeah. And, and one of the things I love, uh, I think Rent, I think Aaron Gertler, I think even Chris Kavartek, some of these other players and Crokies for that matter are all examples of players who they'll get ideas about what they like to do in magic or what's good in magic. And they'll fricking just smash their way through until they prove it's good. And I love this. I love that people are doing this. I think it really, it turns the common conventional wisdom of magic on its head. And I think it proves that if you get into something enough and if you explore a theory enough, and if there's a particular play pattern that you really enjoy, I think you really can get there. Maybe maybe you're not going to win a pro tour, but I think that just being able to reach high mythic with a deck such as mono green is a big achievement. And I think that it highlights that there's still a lot of deck building space in magic to explore for the brave souls who are willing to do it. So, and those willing to not listen to the haters, but that was, that's very well said. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I am one of these such mages and I have been messing around this season with mono green and seeing what's up. Now, of course, one of the biggest shots in the arm, which the green color has gotten in standard for the creature on the creature side is mutate. So there are several playable mutate creatures in green. Andrea Mangucci has already demonstrated this to us by making his Simic mutate deck. And I actually don't know how competitive that deck is in standard, but it sure is fun to play it's fun to go off with and it can do incredibly powerful things. So when I was coming to building the archetype, one of the things that I wanted to find out was, is mutate a potential in mono green? And the short answer is yes. I actually think that mutating is one of the better things that you can be doing in mono green at the moment. And this is thanks to a couple of sweet little monsters. First of all, Gem Razor. Gem Razor was designed i mean you look at this card and it was designed on the outset to be a contender in standard it was designed to be an answer to various problems it was designed to give decks such as this mono green deck a little bit of extra game against fires of invention a little bit of extra game against wilderness reclamation and in general any other kind of decks that are trying to go over the top leveraging busted artifacts or enchantments so gem razor is an all-star, has trample, has reach. And um, and so one of the initial ideas that I had, and it was actually helped along by Skybills, who'd been playing around with this idea, was to mutate Gemraiser onto Stonecoil Serpent, which, if you think about it, gives you a very, very efficient beta for the cost of the low cost of three mana. And so I started out with this idea of what if we get creatures with counters on them and then we mutate onto them and then make these big, effectively hasty trampling monsters and just smash a lot of face. So I built a prototype of the deck and I'm going to tell you the deck list that I ended up on eventually, but I just want to take you through some of the iterations. So this is an example of you come up with an idea. I wonder if making some big trampoly mutaty creatures is going to be good enough as standard. So I started off with a list that was somewhat reminiscent of the Eldraine lists. I had my Pelt Collector in there. 
was playing some Yavos. Yavos comes in with a, a bunch of counters and gets even more. Um, we also, I had some questing beasts, just good old mono green smasher in there. I forgot to make a joke about Akroma's Memorial turning every creature into a questing beast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, questing beast is like the, the god lion of Akroma's Memorial. Questing beast went on a quest to Akroma's Memorial and came out the other side. Cue training montage. So... Uh, I also was uh, running some copies of Nissa because Nissa's just a house. I mean, you could just run a deck that was like, you know, 56 forests for Nissa and win games. Challenge accepted. This is (laughs) challenge accepted, right? Yep. (laughs) Now now we're going to have to prove this. So I was running this deck and it was all right. It was all right. However, I'm going to say that there's a reason why you haven't seen cards like Yorvo seeing any play in standard. Yorvo in particular, I kind of have a grudge against, and I have almost immediately cut from any mono green deck that I have built in the past. It just suffers from a number of problems. A of all, it's legendary, which can be kind of annoying. B of all, a 4-4 beta for 3 that doesn't really do much else. The turn you play it is just not really where you want to be. If you're, if you're mutating, you ideally want to be mutating onto a cheaper creature. Um, or a creature where you can really, really leverage it, like the Stone Coil Serpent. So I quickly cut Yavo. Another card that I quickly cut was the Pelt Collector for the simple reason that Pelt Collector does not get pumped when you mutate. And this is because it's not counting as an additional creature entering the battlefield. Yavo also doesn't get pumped when you mutate. And so this was kind of a nombo. I realized pretty quickly that this was like a failing of the original version of the deck that I put together. But what I was discovering was that there were a couple of creatures that were just putting in incredible work. The first was Migratory Great Horn. So this is the 3-4 for 4, uh, 3 and a green, but it mutates for 2 and a green. And when it does mutate, you can search up a basic land from your library and put it onto the battlefield tapped. So nice little ramp, uh, little ramp spell and mutate payoff. And one of the first light bulbs in this deck for me was the play pattern of running Arboreal Grazer into Migratory Great Horn. So basically what this allows you to do is it allows you to get two lands down on turn one. And then if you have a third land in your hand, you can mutate Migratory Great Horn onto the Grazer on turn two, get a fourth land. So you're at four lands, turn two, and get a hasty three, four, which is pretty nasty, especially on the play. Like if, let's say you're on the draw, right? Your opponent goes turn one, Grazer, another land, go. You play a tap land. Turn two, they go land, migratory, great horn, another land, attack you for three, go, right? You're looking down at your tap land and you're like, all right, this game's going to be fun. <laughs> what's, you know, what's coming down next turn that I have to deal with with my two mana? So that is, that's a, a really strong turn one, turn two play that I wanted to explore. There are a number of nasty things that you can do after this. You can slam a questing beast on turn three and just get in for seven. You can slam a Nyssa if you have another land, and that's pretty hard for an opponent to deal with. You can just do any number of other kind of nasty things after that. You could even slam a card which I ended up adding more of into my deck, the Auspicious Starix, which is a 6-6 for five mana which, uh, what's the term here? Is it Cascade? 
When you mutate the star X, you look at the top number of cards of your deck, uh, which is the number of times the creature has mutated, and you get to put that many permanents off the top of your deck into play. So this is basically what, what happened was that as I played this deck more, I started to love the mutate creatures more, and I started to take out all of the rest of the creatures in the deck. I just dis- I found that the mutate creatures were doing so much for you, and it's basically a way that you get a spell-like effect out of a creature, which is pretty hard to do in mono green. Usually you don't really get to do a lot of fancy stuff. You're just about jamming creatures and smashing face. So these mutators really give your deck a lot of interest and a lot of options. I think one of the underrated things on mutate is that you're not only getting that spell effect, but you're adding power and toughness to creatures that are otherwise useless without it. Arboreal Grazer, the Gilded Goose. I'll let you continue on that, but I just like that stood out to me as uh, something that go that was probably working very well for you. Whereas most decks are just about mutating. They, they think that the problem with mutate is removal, right? That they throw you that that that's a huge setback. But you get value on the way in from the mutation and the creature that you're mutating onto. Like it, it a grazer isn't doing anything anymore. You're not going to miss it if something happens to it. Correct. So that was a light bulb moment for me. It was originally the idea of the deck was to mutate onto already good creatures to make them better creatures. And the play patterns that I actually ended up settling on and really liking were mutating onto essentially mana docks that had already done their job. So one of the issues of playing a ramp deck is if the things that got you ramp get into the late game, they start to get pretty useless. And uh, Simic decks have solved this problem by just playing busted cards like Growth Spiral or Oro, which continue to draw you cards and thus offset the disadvantage of spending cards and time on ramping. But in a mono green deck, you don't get that luxury. So if you want to ramp in mono green, you're going to have to play a bunch of dorks like Arboreal Grazers and stuff, which really don't do that much. And so the light bulb moment for me was if you can play these dorks in the first couple of turns of the game and get a mana advantage, and then later in the game, if you can mutate onto those dorks, then you can both get additional value out of the dork you can get a hasty creature and it's just a it's a different way of creating card advantage than mono green usually has access to so i started moving more and more in the in the, in that play pattern i started finding myself adding four gilded geese to the deck um i i started removing the serpents the stone coil serpents until i had only one in the deck and then i was like why am i even main decking this card it just it was not good for me and so i'm gonna read the list that i ended up with first of all it's running 27 lands it has 21 forests it has four castle garenbrig it has two bonders enclave now um i'm not quite sure that's the correct number of bonders enclave but that's just what i settled on for my initial testing what were you thinking on the Enclave, like going up or going down? Obviously, there's tension between like Vivian Arcbow Ranger, but there's also mana fixing from Paradise Druid and Gilded Goose that we're getting to. What, what were you thinking? More Enclaves or less? Yeah, I, I, you would like to run as many as you can get away with in a deck like this, and the number you can get away with is, is the catch. You want to maximize the number of lands in your deck that can come into play untapped on turn one, because this deck is running for Arboreal Grazer and for Gilded Geese. 
So actually, I think I'm at three Gilded Geese at the moment. So yeah, to have a turn one with this deck where you have either of those cards in hand and cannot cast them is disastrous. I mean, it's you've almost lost the game right then and there. So yeah, so there is a tension between how many cards which don't produce untapped green for you on turn one. That's really the crux of it. Once you get a couple of lands out in, in a mono green deck, it's usually no problem. I've never had the, you know, hand where I had like one forest and two bonders enclave and I couldn't cast my, my Vivian or whatever. Hasn't come up for me yet. But that's always a tension in adding these colorless cards to your monocolored deck, whether it's blast zone or any number of these other things is you just got to keep an eye on how much is it actually going to restrict to in the early turns of the game and it can be pretty punishing so you got to keep keep that in mind so 27 lands this is a ramp deck and then so we're running four arboreal grazer and three gilded goose now it's really if you can get one of these down on turn one it's a massive step forward in this deck the deck also runs four paradise druid Paradise Druid is an excellent card not only for uh, ramping you but or, or, or fixing you if you need that as well, but it's also an excellent mutate target because it can stay untapped and have hexproof, and so the only way your opponent can deal with that is either by wrathing or by making you sacrifice a bunch of stuff. So that can actually be really powerful in the late game and give you a reason to have your Paradise Druids actually be relevant in the late game. So this is kind of our dark base. This is this is the base of the darks that the deck runs. Now, what are you doing on top of this? So the deck runs for Gem Razor, and again, Gem Razor just does it all. It's a beater. It destroys artifacts and enchantments. It blocks for days. It has trample, so it attacks for days. Um, it can be really important for stuff in the late game. Like let's say you have an auspicious Starix out, and your opponent has a bunch of one ones let's say you're playing one of these Laris decks in particular and you just need to force through some hasty trample damage to finish the game so basically gem razor is is part of the glue that holds this deck together i don't think that you could really play a deck like this without gem razor especially in the current format kind of a segue but did you know that i actually didn't know this i had to read it again but did you know that questing beast actually doesn't have reach or trample <laughs> breaking news <laughs> It's just kind of I funny how those go together, isn't it? They, they do. They do indeed seem to go together somehow. I'm not quite sure what the what the combo is, but the Vivian tokens, if you have a Vivian 5, it also seems to allow you to have those options. So synergistic, synergistic keywords indeed. So, and of course, the 4 Migratory Great Horn, which is one of the linchpins of this deck, we're running as well. We're also running 4 Questing Beast, and it's easy to forget when you're looking at this deck, but this deck is about smashing face. So the whole concept of this deck is that you're trying to just utterly destroy your opponent before they have a chance to stabilize against you. And Questing Beast is a really important part of that. It's also a big follow-up slash top deck after you get Wrathed. And then to finish out the creature suite, this deck is running four copies of Auspicious Starix, which we discussed before, which is basically the, it's kind of the top end of the deck. It's a finisher, and it's a way for you to leverage the previous mutations that you've made in the deck as well. It can be very strong. So to supplement all of these creatures, we also have three Vivian Arcbow Rangers. So that's the four mana Vivian that basically helps you to smash face. And it has three Nissa who shakes the world because Nissa. Now, I'm not going to say that this is like 
the only mono green deck that you can play in the current standard, but after the various iterations and permutations and historically playing a lot of mono green, this is definitely what I would be trying to do. Something in this shell is definitely what I would be trying to do in mono green. This deck can be absolutely insanely unstoppable. So on the turns when you, you know, you get your Grazer down, you get a turn two Great Horn, you get your Questing Beast, you get your Nissa, you get your Vivian to kind of close out the game, it can be pretty much unbeatable. You can win through Wraths, you can win through Disruption. I've even had multiple games where my opponent Agent of Treacheryed me, and it was just too late. It just didn't matter. So that's the idea of this deck. This deck is not... In, in its heart, it's not actually a true ramp deck because you don't have some massive over-the-top finish that this deck is going for. The ramp in this deck is to get your four and your five drops out as early as you can and then just leverage those in the mid-game to smash face. If you get to the late game, you probably get overwhelmed playing a deck like this. So all of your play decisions should be focused towards just getting in as much damage as you possibly can in the early turns of the game. So how did it perform? This deck just stomped me all the way up through gold and into platinum at the beginning of the season. And I've kind of tapered off in platinum. I've definitely found that this deck is overall more of a best of one deck than a best of three deck. Now let's just cover the sideboard real quick. In, uh, I put together a sideboard for this, which includes Endray's Forerunners. And the only reason this is in the deck is so that you can fetch it up with Vivian if you need a finisher. It's got four Stone Coil Serpent. You bring these in against Teferi, Deafening Clarion, Fire's Matchup. It's very good. Any deck which is trying to leverage a bunch of multicolored cards or kill your creatures with things like Narset 4. It's very good. Uh, but I will say that Stone Coil Serpent, it's one of my pet cards. And I all I, every deck I run Stone Coil Serpent and I end up taking it out. One of the main weaknesses of Stone Coil Serpent in this particular matter is that it's one of the only cards in this deck which can be targeted by Claim the Firstborn. It's one of the reasons I like this deck actually is that it's very, very, very resilient to Claim the Firstborn. It hits almost nothing that you care about. Whereas the Stone Coil just promptly gets fed to an oven as soon as you resolve it. You can also play Shifting Ceratops, so I've got four of those in the sideboard, which are also very strong against these Yorion decks. It can't get Agent of Treachery, it can attack past the Yorion, can't get Teferi, can't get Counted. Very, very good. I've also got four Ram through, so that's some of the only removal that this deck is running apart from the Vivian. And finally, uh, rounding it out with two Voracious Hydra, which may not even belong in the deck. I haven't brought them in yet. So... Anyway, yeah, um, I think that this deck is a great choice if you want to ladder quickly. I think that the deck can get you through the ranks in best of one quite quickly. I've climbed a lot in best of one playing this, so it's possible that it should just belong in best of one, and this is a deck that you can use to get yourself up to, you know, whatever tier you want to be. I don't think it's quite top tier at the moment. I would call this tier two maybe 1.5, depending on how the metagame is leaning. It does, however, have an excellent matchup against Yorion. So oh, oh, oh. oh, really? You just, you just uh, this podcast should now be the most downloaded thing you've ever created. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is one of the reasons why I've been enjoying playing this deck, actually, because I've consistently had games where... 
by the time your Yorion deck does its whole thing, it gets the docks down, it gets the Yorion down, it gets the value train running. You've just ended the game. You've you've just gotten your hasty threats through. You're you're drawing your questing beasts. You're getting in there with Nissa, and you're just completely overwhelming your opponent. One of the things I like about running the Planeswalkers in this deck, in this current meta, in lieu of something like Umori, which is what Andrea Mangucci's list is built around, is that the Planeswalkers give you a lot of resilience against Wraths. And the and Vivian in particular is another card that can make your dorks more relevant in the late game. Like if, if your opponent Wraths and kills your good creatures, you can slam down your Arboreal Grazers and your Geese and your Paradise Druids and start making them better with Vivian. So I've actually found that the deck is quite resilient to sweepers, especially if you sequence it properly. My end thought with this deck is play it in best of one, run over the Yorian matchups, accept the fact that it's probably not going to be a, a real tier one contender, but just have fun with it. And remember that you can never, ever, 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 ever beat a Priest of the Forgotten Gods. That card <laughs> is not a beat for this deck. I was wondering, I was wondering. Okay, uh, if you don't mind, I want to like put on my interviewer hat. I want to like ask you some questions. Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah, lay it on me. So yeah, I, let's go. I love the discussion on Yorvo, Stone Cold Serpent, Pelt Collector, and explaining why it's not about mutating to make a bigger creature. It's to make like these creatures that gave you a little value and a bit of ramp hit harder. Uh, that you don't need a huge creature to get it done. You just need a good creature. I thought that was really cool. Um, I'm going to come back to Umori because that's the trap I think I would fall into the most easily is the discussion that you have to have a companion. Like, you have to have a companion. It's a companion meta game. They're the new shiny. Everybody feels like you have to have a companion. And this deck is six cards from an Umori. I think most people would make that trade, but you're saying the Planeswalkers are just that high impact. It's not worth a free four or five. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so I think of Umari as a combo card. Um, I I don't think that you can run Umari as just a beater. I don't think that it does enough for you. So that's why it works so well in Andrea Mangucci's deck is because his entire deck is based around creature combo. His whole thing is just putting a million creatures onto the board as quickly as you can and creating these insane mutate chains that just keep going and going. And so that's why Umari is fantastic in his deck. In this deck, you you don't have that. It's It really is in this deck literally a 4-5 with almost no upside. And so that was why I made the decision to not run Umari. If I was going to run Umari, I would have to think about... I don't know, in a mono green deck, you might be looking at something like Beast Whisperer, for example, could be a way to create that similar cascading effect that Umari helps you to do. Um, you might also consider doing something like uh, going into Gruul and playing the Raptor, which also um, decreases the cost of your spells. So that's probably the direction I would go in if I were trying to leverage Umari, but I don't really think Umari belongs in just like a green beta deck. Okay, um, 27 lands, 4 Paradise Druid, 3 Gilded Goose, 4 Arboreal Grazer. Are you afraid of flooding out? Is it a thing that happens? Or are these cards so powerful that it doesn't matter if you only draw a couple of threats, they just win the game? So this, this has been a case of 
Arjuna's magic theory versus what magic arena serves up Arjuna. So this has been a thing ever since I've been running mono green decks is that arena loves to give me two land hands and arena loves to, for some reason when I'm running monocolored decks, this happens to me in arena and I'm not going to put on my tinfoil hat cause whatever, but I noticed like when I'm playing Jeskai or whatever, I tend to flood. I tend to have a lot of lands. It tends to give me a lot of lands. Whereas when I'm playing these really streamlined monocolor decks, Arena tends to screw me. And so I've actually, um, screw has been a much bigger problem for me running this deck than flood, which seems insane because I'm running uh, 11 mana docks and 27 lands. But that has been my overall experience so far is not being able to cast my spells. It's, it's rigged, um, dude. It's freaking rigged. It, 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 that's the way it feels, man. I mean, that's all I'm going to say is that's the way it feels. Because I feel like if I was playing this in paper, I would be running 26 or even 25 lands. Mm-hmm. Try 13. So, <laughs> but one of the tensions for me in this deck, and I think like round three of this deck, I might actually take out some of the dorks and try to put in some cards that are a little bit more high impact. Because it does like... 27 lands plus 11 docks plus migratory great horns that get you more lands is an awful lot of land. So it's something that I think could probably use some tweaking. It, But it also seems to be a direction for magic, right? More land. Just play yeah. more land. Yeah. Um, I want to well, ask... Uh, oh, did you have something on I was, that? I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. To, to, to wit on that, um, I was listening to the Bash Brothers podcast and Brad Nelson made a really good point where he was basically saying you're not running enough land in standard. And the point that he was making was that the cards are so powerful that if you can just resolve your spells on curve, you're usually ahead in, in current day magic. And so previous magic, when all of your cards weren't doing a million things for you, when they weren't all cooking you dinner and cleaning the kitchen and, and winning the game for you, you had to be a bit more judicious about your lands because, you know, every top deck mattered. But his point, and I think it was a really excellent point, is that if you're playing a deck which has all these busted cards in it that just net you so much advantage, and especially cards that cost a lot of mana, uh, this is a very mana-hungry standard format right now with all of the ramp and all of the enablers and all of the payoffs, that he was saying you just need to make sure you get your stuff out as fast as possible. And I think that he was really right. And I think that that explains a little bit why this deck has so much of that in it, because you just like you can't miss a land drop. You can't afford, especially with a deck like this, you can't afford to be playing off curve. It's designed to play on curve. And if you if you miss that beat, you're probably losing the game. That's a good segue to my next question. If your hand does not have a Paradise Druid, a Goose, or a Grazer, do you mulligan? Absolutely. Okay, that's what I had a feeling. 100% of the time. Yep. And this was something that I learned early in Eldraine Standard was that if you're running any of these like Oko decks or any of these whatever decks and your curve started at three, you were dead on board. Like you just, yeah, I, I think in this current standard, you cannot afford to do that. And, and the problem with this deck, any creature that matters or any card in this deck that matters starts at four mana. So if you look at the deck, it's basically dorks and four and five mana plays. And that's the whole deck. So yeah, if you if you don't have an accelerator in your hand, it's an instant mull. The it it's also part of like where we are in standard, and this is something a lot of people 
miss is a power toughness advantage is usually not as good as a mana advantage currently. Right. Correct. This is this is why Pelt Collector and Stone Coil Serpent were traps, because you keep hands with those and you're like, well, I have a creature, you know, I have something to play on turn one or turn two. But if it's not a ramp creature, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I just I think magic isn't that at the moment. Like you can't just play efficient beaters and hope to get there. You need to have a bigger plan. And so for me, the plan is go really, really big right out the gate. You want to play creatures that are big on turn like three through five and and just try to get your opponent's life total low enough and get them off balance fast enough and hopefully outscale these kind of piddly um, Laris decks for long enough that you can close the door. Yeah, the last question I really wanted to know is like, did you try the Great Henge? So the Great Henge is now Rint is currently playing a version of the deck with Great Henge and they have the Growth Chamber Guardian Henge combo. They are also running the um, Pelt Collector. I don't know if they're running Yorvo. So I have played Great Henge in previous iterations. Personally, I'm pretty down on that card in the current meta. And basically it comes down to um, Exhibit A is Teferi. Exhibit B is Elspeth Conquers Death. And uh, Exhibit C is Gemraiser. People are actually... I ran into a fair number of Gemraisers. It was another reason why I took out the Stone Coil Serpents, because tapping out for a Serpent and having your opponent Gemraiser, it feels pretty awful. So I think that the meta is very, very hostile at the moment to the Henge. The other thing is, in a deck like this, I have not found good windows to cast it i think if you're playing henge you ideally want to get you want to have creatures like the beast the lovestruck beast so that you can play that card on curve if you play beast on three or beast on three mana then you can play the henge on four mana and that's a good transaction which is one of the reasons you see that card as a one-off in the main deck of the Clover deck, for example, because that deck is just running Beast all day. But I I don't think that that Lovestruck Beast would be a good fit for this particular deck. So it's possible that I'm missing that. It's also possible that running some in the sideboard of a bit more of a grindy match could be where it's at. But the way that I'm feeling currently is that tapping out for one of those is probably not quite the move in this deck. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, maybe where those hydras are hanging out in the sideboard, we could try. You could try some great hench, but uh, that's my questions. I, I feel totally. I feel like my questions on this deck have been answered. I'm going to try it out. Excellent. Yeah, give it a try. Tell me what you think. Uh, definitely stronger and best of one. And I'd love to hear any listener comments as well. So you know, don't don't sleeve this up for your next PTQ, but have some fun with it. Cool. All right. So I mentioned that this deck had a pretty good matchup against Yorian decks in general, which brings us quite neatly to our topic of Luca. Now, Luca is kind of the big bad boy at the moment in Standard. And I don't know. I just like my initial question for you, CGB, is playing on the ladder. A of all, are you running into this deck? And B of all, how are you feeling about it? I'm running into it on ladder a lot, and 
I have the only feelings I think you can have about it when you play against it on ladder, which is it, it is very, very infuriating to try to play any game other than like smash them magic with. Like yeah. if you the experience if you play aggro against this Luca agent of treachery deck is the same as any other control deck. If you get them dead before they have their big turn five or their big stabilizing Yorian turn or Luca turn or agent turn, then you did it and you move on to the next game. And this is just another deck. And if they do get to do their thing, it doesn't really matter how they beat you. It's like how every other deck would turn the corner. This one happens to steal your things. Uh, any other deck might wrath you, counter you, and never let you resolve anything again. That's all the same experience. But if you are like me, and you're a mid-range or a control player, and the part of the game that we like is the interactive puzzle with the opponent, this is the most annoying thing in the freaking world. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, am I with you? You know, and, and here's the thing. 100% of my problem with these Luka decks is just Agent of Treachery. If it were any other payoff, I'd be chill. There's something about taking your cards and using it against you. Do you do you remember when they printed like Thief of Sanity and where like the worst feeling was getting hit uh, with a Thief of Sanity? Not only yeah. do they get your card, they get to look at three of your cards and choose one. That's all you want to do every turn is like have selection, you know, if you're a, a controller, a value-oriented mage. But they get that, but with your deck, that uh, is disgusting. There was a time in MTG Arena not that long ago where if a thief was about to hit you on turn three, we just you you had to scoop. You couldn't possibly let them look at your deck. Like it, <laughs> you, you just had to scoop immediately. But agent is so much worse than that. This is you invested time and energy into these permanents. You tap mana to cast them, and this card is just taking it away. And with Luca able to exile like a tiny token, the, the one of the more meaningless resources that you never want to be forced to interact with, and turn it into your best permanent, and then do it again with Yorian, and then do it again with Elspeth Conquer's death, or with another Agent of Treachery, or whatever. It's infuriating. It, the the yeah. feeling is that all the greatness that I put into my deck, your, my opponent gets to enjoy it. it. It is meant to be frustrating and absolutely disgusting. You know, I think the, the most crushing play pattern with this deck is something like turn three to fairy, turn four fires, maybe wrath the board, right? And then turn five, they slam Luca. They they get their they have a token they exile the token they play their agent of treachery and then they play Yorion on top of that so they actually get two treachery triggers in one turn so I guess you probably couldn't do that if you wrathed on turn four so next the wrath but my point is that they can actually on turn five get two agent of treachery triggers on you and if that's not game over then I don't know what kind of amazing deck you're playing right three three agent triggers they can do three on turn five do you want to hear oh it? can they okay lead us through that yeah so they have to play fires on turn two and they have to have a token going into turn no they have to play fires on turn four i don't know why i said turn two they have to play right. fires on turn four and then they have mm -hmm. to have a token leading into turn five 
So okay. their first yep. play for turn five, their first spell is a Luka. It turns the token into an agent of treachery. Their second spell for turn five is Yorian. It blinks the fires and the agent of treachery. They now go. their land yep. is untapped still because they've only played two spells using fires. So they cast them for zero and the fires is exiled temporarily. So they have five mana available. They can use that to cast another Luka or a mythos of a Luna copying the agent of treachery or the Luka exiling the Yorian to get another agent of treachery. Ah, uh, that's so filthy. And the result can be, yes, three stolen permanents <laughs> on turn five. <laughs> uh, it's it's so miserable. It's so miserable. And the funny thing is that Agent of Treachery was a hated card by so many coming into this matter already. And the funny thing is, I had I had kind of let it slide up until then. I was like, ah, ramp deck payoff, all right, you earned it. Or Thassa agent combo, all right, well, that happens late game, and I can deal with it with a removal spell, yada, 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 right? And so even though it sucked to lose to it sometimes, it just, it didn't have quite the same feeling of like turn five getting agented three times. There's something about that which just makes you want to, I don't know, never play magic again in your entire life. Yeah, yeah, uninstall, unsubscribe, <laughs> yeah, anger like... post on Twitter. Yeah, all of these things. <laughs> Angry exactly. comments on YouTube videos, you know, or uh, heck, in re- if you want to leave a review, of course, five stars on this podcast, but you're also encouraged if you want to vent about Agent of Treachery, you can do it there. Indeed, indeed, or in one of CGB's many videos. So here's the question that I want to ask CGB is which shuffler do I get access to where I managed to get this combo off pretty consistently on turn five in an 80-card deck? Like, how how does that work? Right, so there's three things that make it more consistent. One is the 80-card thing people immediately... We've, we've been so trained. We've been so trained to say that the reason we play 60 cards is because it's more consistent, right? It's a knee-jerk reaction if pressed by somebody who showed up with a 70-card deck, why do you play 60? It's like, so we draw the better cards. So when an 80-card deck draws well, that also is naturally tilting and revolting. So it adds to that feels bad, which is why this is might be the most feels bad deck of all time. Um, maybe we can have a... That sounds like a great podcast someday, a great segment. But this deck yeah. is a contender without question because that's part of it. It's 80 cards. How is it this consistent? There's a few things going on here. The first is that, of course, it's not just cantrips, but cards like Omen of the Sea and Narset let you see so many more cards than I think that we really give credit to, because it's not just the fact that Narset goes four cards deep and gets a card. By the time that you've activated Narset twice and taken two draw steps for your turn, you are 10 cards deeper through your deck. So yeah. that is a lot of cards. And in um, we, we've seen like Narset lets people play less sweepers in a 60 card deck in the last format. Well, in this format, you're still playing four Lucas. If you have turn two, Omen of the Sea, that's a scry two and a draw. Three cards deeper, plus your draw step, four cards deeper. Narset, we talked about that. If that gets activated twice, ten cards deeper. 
that's like we're we're close to getting through like those 20 extra cards if we stacked our deck with the worst 20 cards you know what i mean right not to mention yeah. scry lands temples or cycling lands shark typhoon draws an extra card like there's draw a card on everything so every deck feels smaller than it used to be i mean yeah. why why don't they just print it on lands going forward this land enters the battlefield tap draw a card you know who, who would <laughs> blink who would blink in this format if that was a thing <laughs> yeah it, it's it's kind of amazing that it's come to that but you're right it's like the can tripping is almost a given and now, you'd have to right? figure out if you play it you know, do you run those we, lands because you can't curve out now <laughs> it's it's so interesting how shivan dragon used to be the thing right shivan dragon big big creature ends the game Nowadays, it's like four mana, six, six, flying, trample, draw a card. And we'd wonder like, hmm, I, I don't know if that's really good enough, man. <laughs> is, is it doing enough? I don't know. So yeah, I want these new cards to just get off my lawn. Stop stealing my things. <laughs> my cards. <laughs> yeah, just just do Just search up anything else. I just want to see anything else come out of that deck. So, all right, so we've identified the problem. Now, this is one of my big questions to you, CGB. What do we do about it? Like, how do we go about attacking this deck in a meta game if if our approach is going to be not playing it ourselves? Like, what, what do we do about it? If you like aggressive decks, just keep being aggressive and be more aggressive than you are usually aggressive. Like, removing permanence doesn't do much here. Almost mm-hmm. nothing. So, like, you're a green deck with no removal spells. Yeah. Like, that is ideal. Like, like uh, shock. Yeah. Take, smash face. Take shock out of your mono red deck. Put in another threat that would do more damage. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's like, just get there. Infuriate mm-hmm. over shock. That kind of red deck, you know. Um, but, yeah, if if you don't mind aggression, then just smash it. Like I said, the feels bads will be minimal because it's like any other control deck if you didn't kill them fast enough they're going to have an end game you may as well scoop go on to the next game you'll be fine i i I feel for my people though man i feel i feel for my control mages i feel for the the long game people like oh man it's a tough puzzle to solve i don't believe that i'm to a point where i don't believe you can be reactive and beat this deck because I don't know what you would have to put in your deck to have the perfect combination of cards that could always stop Teferi, Narset, Fires of Invention, Elspeth Conquers Death, the tokens that this thing just cranks out either for free with the castle or with the omens. I mean, you have to respect those. They'll just kill you if you do nothing about them. And then, uh, oh yeah, the Agent Endgame, which by the way, Essence Scatter, Mystical Dispute, you counter the agent. What if Elspeth Conquers Death just gets it back again and again and again? And what, like, I just don't believe there's a reactive way. And people are saying, well, you know, Unmoored Ego, Unmoored Ego the agent. Like I said, they can still beat you in other ways. And there's still this bottomless pool of value. And Yorion just lurks, man. That card, that card just lurks in the background. That's usually what gets me to scoop. It's not that first agent that's like, oh, I slipped 
Elspeth Conquers Death Resolved, her agent took one land. It's the fact that that Yorion is just hanging out, waiting for you to make a move, and that thing will just come down and wreck you. And it just seems to get worse every turn that goes by with how much of a beating that card will give you. So what we discovered testing, I was helping one of my, uh, one of the people that I coach, we were testing for a tournament this weekend and this player wanted to play Bant, uh, Bant Control, which is kind of a deck that's been victimized now by this Luka deck. And what we discovered in testing was two things. One, you have to you have to have a clock with a few counter spells. You you can't counter everything. You're not going to. Mm. You won't be able mm. to. So you have to be able to counter one or two key spells to buy you time. And that means you have to be attacking during that time because if you're not if you're not attacking during that time, eventually you'll just get overwhelmed. The the steamroller mm-hmm. starts on turn one, and it ends with all your toys belonging to the other player. So somewhere in the middle, you have to figure out how to win the game. So that meant a deck that was normally very controlling, like Bant, we had to play weird, like Uro, Questing Beast out of the sideboard, Knight of Autumn out of the sideboard, Yorian Beatdown. You know, I, I was casting Yorian for little to no value early, just so I could try to attack five times before my opponent stole all my permanents. The other weird thing about this experience, if you let the opponent steal your land, you won't have the resources to fight back for what comes next, which is usually them mm. stealing more land. So yeah. we were strategically and intentionally casting things just so they would get stolen <laughs> instead mm. of our land. I see. Right? Yeah. Like, like I throw Tamio out there like, okay, please steal this instead of my land so I can at least cast this Elspeth Conquers Death afterwards, exile the agent so that the Yorian doesn't blink it the following turn. I love it. So you're, you're running interference. I mean, it's, I don't know if I love it. <laughs> it's kind of like playing a planeswalker against aggro just so that they'll attack the, the walker instead of your face. Oh, it's worse than that, dude. It's worse. <laughs> it's so much worse than that because they're going to use this thing against you like brutally. So yeah, yeah it's it, it, you, tough life. Do you think that some kind of flash deck has a chance against this. Like, imagine, okay, I know it's hard to imagine, but if you can get under the Teferi, do you think that either whether it's blue-green flash, blue-black flash, salt-eye flash, do you think that some version of flash could get there? Sure, you can get under the Teferi. You can be the deck that has four quenches, a negate or two, and four mystical disputes to make sure that Teferi just never, ever, ever resolves. And you can get there. Like, the flash deck can do it. Here's the problem. Your opponent starts with an eight-card hand, and nearly every card in their deck requires a counter. So you can't miss a beat. If you miss a land drop, you die. If you hold up a counter spell, but it's the wrong counter spell for the moment, as in you have an essence scatter or disdainful stroke when they play Teferi, you die. Uh, it, it is that's like like the edge is so microscopic that you have to walk with flash that you have to know your deck in and out you have to have the right cards in the first place in the deck like essence scatter like i said was a card i liked when companions were first introduced they're all creatures same with tails end which some people have been espousing espousing is that the right word but you Correct. know yeah you know what i'm saying Disdainful Stroke is another one that people have been recommending. I don't think you can run any of those cards. 
Because if you go one turn without the perfect counterspell, the game will be over. The, the, the edges are too narrow. So you have to have a list full of universal and cheap counterspells. I'm thinking like four quench, four mystical disputes um, as a starting point. And you have to hit every land drop and you have to apply pressure at all the right times because you can't take a turn off. Yeah. This is one of those places where Flash starts to break down because it feels like when you play against Flash on the ladder, it feels like they always have it. But I think if you were to be your average arena player sleeving up Flash against this deck, exactly like you said, it just starts to highlight all the weaknesses of that deck. And it starts to highlight how the moment Flash gets behind, it can be almost impossible for that deck to catch back up. Precisely because I was having this conversation with a member of my Discord recently, and we were talking about discard as a strategy. And I was saying that the problem with discard in this format is that if all of your opponent's cards are netting advantage, then sure, you can make your opponent discard three cards, but the fourth card that resolves is is gonna draw another card. And then they have a threat as well to deal with. And now you're down cards. And so if you're not also playing cards, which are either extremely efficient at cleaning up a bunch of stuff at once, or which are also netting you advantage, then you're going to fall behind in that race. And it's the problem with counter spells, right? Is that until they make a counter spell, which is counter target spell, draw a card. Sure, like you're going to counter the first three things, but the fourth one that comes down is going to net them advantage. And over a long game, you're just going to run out of cards. And meanwhile, your opponent's going to be resolving stuff like Teferi. They're going to be playing cards like Omen of the Sea and blinking them and etc., etc., etc. And so you just can't keep up in that race. So this is one of the fundamental problems of magic right now is that running your opponent out of cards, it's you can do it, but you can't do it in the linear way that you used to be able to do it. You have to run your opponent out of cards essentially by just outscaling them, right? You, you either have to make their cards not matter or you have to have your draw a million cards strategy just be bigger and better than your opponent's. Or, you know, you have to, you know, have something like, for example, I think one of the reasons these reclamation decks have been so successful for so long is that they they just have one of the biggest finishes. And so even like this will happen so often against reclamation where you feel like you're controlling the game the whole time and you'll have this long game where you're winning, you're getting their life total down, you're running them out of cards uh, but, you know, if in the late game they assemble their combo, they get their reclamation and their face burned down, then it doesn't matter. They just they burn you out and that's that. Now, of course, that's an oversimplification of what's actually happening. There's a lot of play to decks like this. But that's the kind of thing you have to be thinking about is like, if I get to the late game, do I have something in my deck such as triple agent in one turn or such as burn the face for 20, you know, in one turn? Um, that that's that's kind of what you're dealing with here. It also actually makes me wonder: do you do you think that cycling gets their land stolen too quickly by Luca to have a good matchup against them? No, I think cycling is one of the decks that has a decent matchup against them because, okay. uh, like like if they have the perfect draw, you know, if if the Jeskai deck can in fact steal two or three lands that turn then they're in trouble. But my experience playing the cycling matchup most of the time was most of the time you don't steal three lands on turn five. Most of the time you steal one. And if I steal one land, 
then the Jeskai player can untap, play another land, and Zenith flare my face. And that's usually about what it takes. Like that turn five, if you have if you have four mana on turn five and a bunch of like ten cards that cycled in your graveyard, then you're usually where you need to be. Especially if you started that game with a fox or a valorant rescuer, the opponent had to shatter. And remember what I said about that triple steel turn? You needed a token on the field going into it. If you force them to shatter instead, then they usually can only steal one thing, maybe two. And if they can't keep you off flare, then you usually have an end game. So my matchups with the cycling deck, and this is why I actually think cycling is the other deck in the format. I think there might be an S tier for the Luka agent deck if it weren't for cycling. I think cycling is like the foil to it, quite frankly, because that deck can do its thing and get the job done, and it doesn't present you great things to steal. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question, is if you could just run one of these decks, like I imagine these Laris decks have this thing going on where there's just nothing very good to steal. And so it makes me wonder if you could get the right configuration against them, if you could just kind of go under them, have their agents not do that much for you, and just be able to get there that way. Like, I imagine that the agent combo is probably not very good against Cat Oven or something like that, but I, I haven't actually played the matchup, so I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? So the Luris, like, Luris Cat Oven had kind of faded away in, in favor of, like, Obosh, and, like, the decks that went bigger were just going over the top of Luris. The Low to the Ground Luris deck with Dreadhorde Butcher it can get a snowball quick enough to beat up on the Luka deck at least game one before Deafening Clarion comes out of the sideboard and really throws a wrench into that. It does have trouble getting enough damage in, and it doesn't really disrupt what they're doing. When the agent train gets rolling, it generally starts not necessarily going after land because the lands aren't that important to the Luris deck, but once, and usually the first agent has to take something like an oven, which is kind of keeping, it's a little bit of protection from getting your stuff stolen, having an, having an oven. But if they right. get through that turn, if they get through that turn where they agented once or twice and stole an oven and maybe something else, it's really hard for the sacrifice decks to close. They do have incidental damage with Cat and with sacrificing cards like Serrated Scorpion, maybe Croxa, but it usually takes them another turn or two to get the job done. And the agent snowballs so hard that if they untap with your oven, they will be stealing your things, putting them in the oven and gaining life for the rest of the game. And and it's really hard to finish the job. So it, yeah. it Luris needs a lot to go right, like a lot. And it's not like... It's not like a typical blue-white control deck matchup with Luris where you don't have stuff on the battlefield. The agent deck is putting out tokens. Elspeth, uh, Sun's Nemesis, Omen of the Sun, Birth of Melitus. There is stuff on the battlefield between you, your creatures, and their face. And Omen of the Sun heals, and Yorian blinks it. And like they actually have access to ways to keep their life total high so that you don't get to ping them out with cat as much as you'd like to yep you know that birth of Miletus, that life gain off of the birth of Miletus, the life gain off of omen of the sun all of those little incidental things and then especially if they get blinked once uh it can really add up 
And it can really make it hard for one of these decks to close because the sack deck really does rely on being able to winnow your life down to 20-ish, right? They Those decks are designed to do 20 to... 23 25 damage to you but if you manage to gain enough life to just get out of that range then they can have a really hard time closing against you yeah that's what makes gem razor look good in a lot of ways is that you just blow up these enchantments incidentally like randomly blow up your birth of melitus before it gains life blow up your artifact wall before it can block blow up your omen of the sun so it can't get blinked like these tiny things that matter a lot more than you think they should yeah that's exactly. It's one of the reasons I've been loving Gem Razor in this format is that you get to hit that Fires or you get to hit that Elspeth Conquers Death. Um, it's just, I don't know. I think Gem Razor is going to be a player in Standard for as long as it's in Standard. I don't necessarily think it's going to be a main deck option all of the time, but I, it's it just does so much for you. I think it cards fantastic. But you know what all of this conversation really brings me back around to? The real answer, the real answer to the Luca deck. Unban Veil of Summer. There, I said it. <laughs> I it, It's a perfect example of everybody wants something until they don't know why they, they... They don't... Like, why does this card... Why was this card ever printed? It's something that's thrown around a lot. Well... Because it was printed in the same set as Agent of Treachery, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, that it's mostly a meme at this point. There are plenty of reasons why that card was miserable to play against. And uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever had an opponent resolve Nyssa, untap a green source, and then Veil on the next turn, you'll know just how maddening that play pattern can be. But um, yeah, I, we, we need something, man. We need something. So I'm going to be thinking about this. I'm going to be thinking about how to approach this matchup because I I don't want to sign that deal with the devil. I don't want to come over to the dark side. I don't want to become a Sith Lord and start running Luka in my deck. I'm, I'm better than that, man. So I'm going to be trying to figure this out. You can always go back to the good old adage that if the sword is lit, we... Uh, legit. <laughs> I, I think Ember Cleave needs to be making more appearances. And I yeah. hate saying that. If they're not going to give us Veil of Summer, then at least we can rock the Cleave. All right. Well, awesome. I think that's going to do it for us this week. We didn't quite meet our mandate of keeping the episode short, but hopefully we'll manage not to make it too, too long. What are we going to be doing this upcoming week here? Well, I'm going to be playing some historic and trying to just come up with what are the best things to be doing in historic to better educate myself for next week's probably historic-themed show before the historic ranked Q returns and historic anthology 3 is revealed. How many times did I say historic in one sentence? Oh my god. But yeah, a, a historic <laughs> number, a truly I'm, historic number. Exactly. I'm going to be jamming some historic this week. What are you up to? Yeah, um, that's that's what I'm going to be doing as well. Uh, you and I discussed doing a little historic head-to-head this upcoming week, so keep an eye out for that. We will let you know if and when that is occurring. Should be in the middle of the week sometime. So I'm going to be focusing on that, and I'm also just going to be getting my head around this idea of what do you do against Luca. And if I get any interesting ideas, I will... I will run them back and let the podcast know. I'm also, you know, uh, this mono green deck I've been playing has had a very good Yorian matchup. It hasn't had a particularly good Luka matchup. 
So I might be trying to figure out if I can actually tune the deck to have a good Luka matchup. And if that's the case, then I will definitely report back on that. In the meantime, have fun out there on the ladder. Keep slaying CGB. Keep slaying you at home. I want to remind you that you can reach ArenaCraft Podcast in all of the places. ArenaCraft Pod on Twitter. ArenaCraft Podcast on Twitch. You can join our Discord, which is linked in the show notes. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Facebook. Just about everywhere that you would think to look, we are there. You can find Covert Go Blue on his channel and basically Covert Go Blue anywhere that you can search for that on the internet should be able to find him. Thanks for another good week, CGB, and looking forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely. I will see you next week and I'll talk to every all the people next week about Historic. It's going to be awesome. Awesome, man. Take it easy. Later. Later.